lest we forget. I'm Jessica Denson, and this is Lights On. Speaking of memories, yesterday may have taken us all off center and made us forget the beautiful sanity we regained just this week. In the election interference case, of course, the DC circuit affirmed, no, Donald Trump does not have absolute immunity from criminal prosecution. He is just citizen Trump. And on that same day, the GOP got utterly humiliated with their sham impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas. Mike Johnson either forgot how many members he has or he can't count. And speaking of memory, let's remember how SEPA procedures give Jack Smith a fast track to appeal to the 11th Circuit, something I think many of us have been waiting and watching for. Well, it looks like he may have finally gotten that opening. Smith just filed a motion for reconsideration after Judge Eileen Cannon made an unsealing decision that would reveal over a dozen witnesses and expose them to threats. The special counsel told Cannon that her order contains, quote, clear error and could lead to, quote, manifest injustice. His filing very um, evidently appears to be teeing up for an appeal to the 11th Circuit if she denies him again, where he could finally ask for her recusal from the classified documents case. Judge Eileen Cannon's conduct has been rightfully described as awful and unethical and is interfering with the most straightforward case to check Donald Trump's crimes. And it's an injustice to national security and the American people. And that's really what we should be remembering, isn't it? That Biden was exonerated from his classified documents probe while Trump repeatedly and willfully retained classified documents that did not belong to him, exposed national secrets, and Donald Trump tried to hide and destroy evidence of this process. Instead, we've all been distracted with a political hit job on Biden's memory, which is just fine, by the way. We're gonna correct the record here today and take a little trip down memory lane on all the times Trump, MAGA, and Biden's attackers have lost their memory or ability to speak. The projection is really strong here. But on the subject of memory, I may be most concerned at this point with the memory of the Supreme Court justices, their memory of their oath to faithfully and impartially discharge all the duties incumbent upon them under the Constitution, not only the ones that are easy or popular their memory that the Constitution and judiciary have in fact denied the popular will of the people in recent history in Bush v. Gore and of course, Donald Trump's electoral college victory in spite of his popular vote defeat. Their memory that while this court stripped over half our population of its bodily autonomy in the name of states' rights, it now appears to question states' rights Article II authority to administer their own elections. I'm most concerned that the justices remember that a constitution put them in the offices that they hold and that without it, they have no authority. And that Donald J. Trump promises to terminate that self same constitution. That, that if they punt until after the election to affirm Donald Trump's section three disqualification or deny it altogether, they will be sanctioning tyranny and bringing us to the brink of a true constitutional crisis, if not civil war, lest we forget what Donald Trump did the last time he lost an election. I will not predict how the Supreme Court will rule, but I know 
that history will not forget it. This court can begin to regain its legitimacy now, or in the words of Adam Schiff, their names too will be tied to Donald Trump with a court of steel and for all of history. I'm so happy to be joined today by someone who has a memory of the right things, who is on the right side of history predicting um, the, the positive outcome that we need and should expect when many others are looking at the <laughs> doomsday um, predictions. Uh, Simon Rosenberg, 30-year political veteran, strategist, author of Hopium Chronicles. So nice to meet you and welcome to Lights On. It's great to be here and what a great opening. I, that was terrific, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. I'd, I'd like to, um, you know, just start off with your thoughts on where we are after this week. It's another one of these weeks yeah. where it's history day after day. It's really, it is amazing, um, the, the tumult in our politics now. I mean, it's hard to really believe. And I think, you know, what's interesting about it is that what the American people really want more than anything else is they just want to get back to their normal lives after the disruption of COVID and recession and all the things that happened and I think all of this tumult is actually, I think, far worse for the Republicans than for Biden, because the one thing that I think the voters don't want is they don't want chaos. They don't want to go back to a place of uncertainty. They want they want the sense of normalcy again. And I think the Republicans are just bringing chaos every day. I mean, it's their it's what they are now. Right. It's what they're you know, the madness of bad King Trump. Right. Every day. So. Where are things now? I think, look, I have this basic take on the election in 2024, which is that Joe Biden is a good president. The country is better off. The Democratic Party is strong in winning elections all across the country. And they have Trump, who's the most unfit guy to be to run for president in all of our history. And so I'm very optimistic about what's going to happen uh, in November. But it is going to be a bumpy, bumpy ride between now and then. So buckle up. Yeah, Simon? Buckle up. Yeah. <laughs> Get ready. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, on Lights On, we have spent an extensive amount of time um, covering Section 3. So I'm not going to yeah. do that today with the caveat that um, I want to remind our viewers, we're going to have a very distinct honor of interviewing Jason Murray on Monday um, to debrief his. He is, of course, the lawyer who argued for the plaintiffs in Colorado. Um, but I do want to give... Um, a few minutes to both Jason Murray and the plaintiffs who, lest we forget, this this uh, theme today is all about memory, that the plaintiffs in Colorado are Republicans, Republicans who are tired of that chaos, tired of the threat of Donald Trump. Um, and both Jason and two of those um, plaintiffs, Norma Anderson, who, by the way, is in a very mentally acute 91-year-old <laughs> from mm -hmm. Colorado, and Krista Kafer um, spoke after the oral arguments yesterday. Here's a few minutes of their speaking. Today is a day that tests our nation's commitment to the rule of law and to whether our constitution applies equally to everybody, regardless of their popularity. The law is clear that President Trump can hold no office again unless two thirds of Congress grant him amnesty. We are confident that the US Supreme Court will apply section three as written and uphold the decision of the Colorado Supreme Court standing for the principle that no person is above the law. This is very personal to me. I've lived a hell of a long time and I've gone through a lot of presidents. And this is the first one that is trying to destroy the constitution. And I thank you for being here. We have so many great people on this case who have come forward to say, this is the line 
This is the line. You cannot foment insurrection. You cannot foment violence. You cannot do these things. They knew about this back in the 1860s and that's why they put this into place. Today, we are proud to stand by the Constitution, by the rule of law, to say never again. And I hope that this court, I know that they take it very seriously. We watched as they uh, ask very hard questions that they take their role very seriously in upholding the Constitution. And I can speak for all of us that we are so proud to be here today on behalf of the American people, on behalf of our democracy, and on behalf of our Constitution. Thank you. You know, regardless of the outcome, Simon, and I am still very hopeful for the right one. Um, I'm, I'm so proud. I, I looked at that team yesterday and having gotten to know them a little bit over the past few months, I'm so incredibly proud of the work that they're doing. Yeah, listen, I think what unites some of the stories that are in the news right now is this growing realization that if we're going to protect our democracy in the coming years, that we're going to have to take on Republican corruption of the judiciary. I mean, this is a, a very profound thing that's happened. I mean, of all the escalating illiberalism that we see coming from the Republican Party, to me, some of the most pernicious and some of the one that I think has been most difficult for us to really confront and talk about has been the corruption of the judiciary. I mean, and, and the idea that somehow behind everything that Trump is doing and everything the Republicans are doing, they know that they've got this partisan Supreme Court that's going to take care of them at the end of the day, that they can misbehave and do crazy things, foment insurrection, and that there won't be cost for it because of a corrupt and partisan court. And, and I think that this is a really serious matter um, that we have to figure out, not in legal terms, not in the way that lawyers talk, but in the way that people talk around their dinner table to understand that there has been an effort going back a very long way. And you mentioned Bush v. Gore, and I was very close to Al Gore and Joe Lieberman during that election. And the shock, I, I will tell you that the shock of that decision has never uh, receded for me. <laughs> you know, and I had very close friends in Florida who were legal experts who believed that, you know, there was no precedent for what the Supreme Court did and that yeah. the Supreme Court had never intervened in a state decision like this before. And the, you know, they handed the presidency to 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 Bush in 2000. And so I do, I do believe that this is a real, what you're getting at, Jessica, and I, and I don't know you that well, but the way you're talking about this, I think is really important because I think it's, it's unacceptable. And what the special counsel did this week was unacceptable. It can't be that the, the way that the Republicans operate and their MO is to cheat, right? And to, and to basically play fast and loose with rule of law in the United States, this lawlessness that we're seeing play out. We've got to continue to do what you're doing which is to fight with all we got to make sure that rule of law prevails in the United States. We the people, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I do want to turn to the subject of that special counsel report. You yeah. know, I got to mm. tell you something. I, I was staying on this theme of memories. I thought I literally looked for a headline that said Biden exonerated. And you know how hard it was to find? <laughs> yeah. it. I think I found one from the Times of Israel that said Biden exonerated dot, dot, dot. Um, but I thought back to the media's coverage of Donald Trump's sham acquittal in those two impeachments where he should have um, been convicted both times. 
Um, and I just remember seeing plastered everywhere, acquitted, 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 acquitted. Well, where was exonerated, 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 exonerated for Biden? <laughs> you know? or, or where was the coverage when Donald Trump became a verified rapist? Or where was the coverage when Donald Trump became a ver you know, was found to be uh, liable for one of the largest financial frauds in American history. I mean, we're, you know, it, it is the imbalance in all of this, right? I mean, because I think one of the things that's happening right now and the desperation I feel like you're seeing play out on the right is due to Trump, the pressure that Trump is feeling. He's having, other than what just happened the last couple of days, he's had a very bad run in the courts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what happened with E. Jean Carroll was disastrous. What happened with Rudy's $148 million judgment was catastrophic for them. You know, what's about to happen in New York State with the, the fines and penalties, which could functionally bankrupt him, you know, in the next couple of days with the immunity loss, right? If you really add it all up, the walls are closing in on Trump. And I think Absolutely. he's, and, you know, and, and, you know, we saw, you know, just from a political standpoint to add to your story, you know, we saw that Donald Trump spent more money politically in 2023 than he took in. That's a shocking outcome and a sign of incredible financial peril for him as a candidate. We saw the RNC is broke. We know that a bunch of the state parties have become dysfunctional. The operational side of this Republican thing is teetering on disaster and not just. And so to me, I think what you're feeling now is you're starting to feel a level of desperation. And I think what they what happened, you know, to the Republicans is that their major talking points against Biden, the economy, inflation, the war on energy, uh, you know, crime, all of those have evaporated in the last few months. And what they've been left with are these very second tier attacks on Biden, his age, right? His, um, you know, Hunter, and then the border. And the border was their big play, right? They had an advantage on that. This was an area where they were doing well. And guess what? Based on their extremism and their, you know, Donald Trump's impulsivity, they blew that this week. They took something where they had a clear advantage and they gave it to us. They, they screwed it up, right, in a major way, taking away one of the only issues left that they really had an advantage. And so what it means for us as we, you know, get ready for this election is that the Republicans, I think, are operating now in a way that feels desperate. They've lost, you know, we won in 2018, we won in 2020, we won in 2022, we won in 2023. They know this is going to be really hard for them. They have one of the worst candidates to run for major office that we've ever seen in the history of the country. Um, and it's going to get worse and worse for them. And so it means that we have to ex expect, I think, greater, more extraordinary efforts to disrupt the current path, right? And whether it's they don't do a CR in March, whether they do what Her did this week, where he wildly overstepped his bounds in a very unethical way, this is going to be their MO. They're going to play dirty. They're going to cheat. They're going to do things that are outside the bounds of democracy because it's the only chance they have, I think, of defeating Joe Biden this year. Yeah, as I often say, the devil knows his time is short, so he's really busy. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I steal that? I'm going to steal please, that, I think. Please. <clears throat> um, I like that. But yeah, I, I mean, I really, you know, I think of, when I think of Biden and these attacks on his, um, his mental acuity, his memory, I mean, there's so much evidence of how sharp this man is, how much he thinks on his feet. I often think back to the first State of the Union, um, and gosh, my memory might even be wrong here. I don't know if it was the first, but I feel like it was the first um, where he, you know, called out in live time Republicans on Social Security yeah. and made them made that make that commitment right there on the on the floor of the House. Um, 
I personally, and I want to get much more into this with you as to what yeah. you think Biden's uh, campaign needs to do leading up to the election. But I really appreciated his um, his forceful comeback yesterday right out of the gate. Yep. Um, with that press conference. And um, I, I really, we're going to do that promised trip down memory lane about Republican memory, but um, let's just focus right now on Biden and his response, which, as I said, I thought was stellar. Yep. If we can play that clip, sorry. <laughs> I know there's some attention paid to some language in the report about my recollection of events. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, wasn't any of their damn business. Let me tell you something. Some of you have commented, I wear since the day he died, every single day, the rosary he got from Our Lady of... Every Memorial Day, we hold a service remembering him attending by friends and family and the people who loved him. I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone to remind me when he passed away or passed away. Simple truth is I sat for a five-hour interview over two days of events going back 40 years. President Biden, something the special counsel said in his report is that one of the reasons you were not charged is because in his description, you are a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I'm well-meaning and I'm an elderly man and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president and I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. It's How totally bad out. is your memory? And can you continue as president? My memory is so bad, I let you speak. That's, you, uh, that's, that's my memory has gotten worse, Mr. No, president. No, my memory is not, my memory is fine. My memory, take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? You know, I guess I just forgot what was going on. Mr. Uh, Mr. President. Um, you know, I thought I, I want to point out one thing because this is what the critics will do. They said he said right there. He said my lady of and he forgot the name of the church lady of something. And then, of course, later in that he's he mistook the president of Mexico for the president of Egypt. I just want to say people that speak for a living do this all the time. I do it almost every every show, not to point no. out my own errors, but I mean, last week, my last interview, I said legislation instead of litigation. I said argue instead of argument. I am mentally acute. I am intelligent. It happens to every single one of us. Um, these attacks are really baseless and, um, you know, I, with what he has accomplished. You heard him there talking back to yeah. Peter Ducey and said, look at what I, I have done. How could I have done what I have done without having a clear memory or mental sharpness? Yeah, listen, I, I think that my own, I have two points I want to make. One is that I do think that the that we have to address this. This is a serious issue. It's on people's minds. And I think part of our job is to remind people that, you know, with age comes, you know, you lose a step. I mean, I'm formerly young myself, right? But, you know, you lose a step here or there, but you also gain wisdom and experience and capabilities that you didn't have as a younger person. And I think that, that you know, that Joe Biden has been successful because of his age, not despite of it. And I think that's really important to understand that these things, you can't unpack these two things. And so I, you know, I think we have a strong case to make here. I'm not really worried about this. And I think to, to, you want to know where you saw a lot of mental acuity this week in the way that we turned the tables on the Republicans on the border and immigration issues. 
I mean, that was a masterful effort by the White House to take away an issue that looked like was going to be problematic for us and to turn it on the Republicans. And it's absolutely, and, you know, so if you want to know if this guy's still, bluff. yeah, if he's still got a fastball, right. I think we saw it this week, you yeah. know, in, in the legislature. And, and I think the second thing I'll say is that it is really, I mean, for anyone who's spent any time watching Donald Trump, the 2024 version of Donald Trump, not the 2020 or 2016, we, Donald Trump, is barely making sense anymore when he speaks. I don't know if it's a memory. I don't know that it's the same, you know, this question about memory, but if you compare the two of them in their public talks, the guy who's gone is Trump. It's not Joe Biden. And I and it's a little bit shocking to me how much of a pass Trump's been getting on this because in essence there's this you know, sort of theatrical nature of Trump and he's, you know, the question is whether he's exaggerating or playing around. He's not there anymore. He's not making sense. I mean, the, the, and, and, you know, frequently when he's speaking, and I think that any kind of sustained attention on this over time is actually going to be far more damaging to Donald Trump and the Republicans than it is to Joe Biden. It may not be in day one, day two, but over time, you play back these videos, you're going to play some videos, right? You play back videos of Trump's remarks in the last few weeks, the confusing of Nikki Haley and Nancy Pelosi. I mean, a whole series of things. It's shocking. And I'll tell you that reporters I've spoken to who've covered him for years feel that he's different and that he's declined, he's diminished significantly. And part of the evidence of that, he's also making huge mistakes, right? He's not just making mistakes about words, but let me give you an example of what happens when you're diminished and decline and making mistakes is that he publicly came out against the ACA and to roll back the ACA. There was no upside for him to do that. That was an impulsive decision by a diminished man. Those are the kind of mistakes that politicians make who are losing, who lose elections. The ACA was the central reason his attempt to roll back the ACA in 2017 and 2018 was the central reason that Democrats won the midterms by eight and a half points in 20, uh, 2018. So he just opened up what may be one of the most serious polit uh, wounds that he has as a politician for no reason. There was no upside for him to do it. It was just impulsive and crazy. And he's making mistakes like this all the time. His repeated uh, on-camera interviews where he's taking credit for ending Roe is another example of his diminishment and how out of it he really is because he's giving us ammunition almost on a daily basis that we're gonna be able to use to push him further and further away from the electorate during the course of this election. Yeah, you want to hear my theory, Simon? Yeah. Okay, so I I am I am anti-ageist. I don't believe in age. I don't think it's anything but a number. Um, I, what I'm concerned about is the mental decline of Donald Trump, not because he's 77 years old, yeah. but because he lies to himself on a daily basis yeah. and has been for over seven decades. And yeah. if you do that to yourself and the world around you, it's bound to drive anyone insane. So sh we shouldn't be surprised that Donald Trump is losing his mind, not again, because he's 77, but because he is a, um, a flagrant liar, um, first and foremost to himself. And of course, um, in just a second, we're going to play uh, this uh, montage I put together of both of Trump's misspeaking and of his defenders misspeaking, uh, mistaking South Carolina for South Dakota, vice versa. Yeah. Um, 
you know, all times that his defenders have forgotten things. But I want to reiterate something you said, and that is that, yes, people misspeak all the time. I do, you do, Biden does, yeah. every anchor on television does it. I used to be an armchair ombudsman sitting there as a former journalism student correcting anchors every time they misspoke because they do it all the time. But there is a clear difference between a simple slip of the tongue and actual dissociation that you are describing where you've completely forgotten in your mind either what you've done or where people fall in time or in history or in sequence of events. And that's clearly what's going on. Uh, with Donald Trump. So, you know, Greg Sargent has coined this term Foxlandia, where, which is this imaginary world, right? Yeah. Where the economy's in recession, where inflation is high, where gas prices are rising, where, you know, Joe Biden is a weak leader, not a strong leader, right? Where, you know, he's waging a war on energy. I mean, there's this, when you go into the Fox Trump world, you you leave reality and truth and you enter this fake world. And I think there's a, it's a form of madness. I mean, I really do believe that we are being way too kind to Trump, um, you know, given how delusional he is and how often he says things that are so unbelievably untrue, not even remotely true, not just the slips of the tongue or the confusions, right? But he argues that, you know, that recession, that we're in recession, that gas prices are higher than when he was in the office, that inflation is raging. I mean, virtually nothing he says about what's happening in America is true. And it, it, it makes sense. And, and I think that, again, the normalization of him and the Republicans during this period when they've become extremists is, is a, a tragedy for the country. And I understand why it happens. I'm a former journalist, I get it, right? You gotta cover him every day. You can't every, every lead be, and the crazy things that Donald Trump said today, right? So there becomes a, a mechanism of normalization around uh, you know, the Republicans. But my God, I've spent time looking at some of his videos and they've been shocking, honestly, to me about how gone he is and how much he's living in this alternative world and how disconnected he really is. I mean, he's, look, there is madness to, to autocrats, right? There is this narcissistic madness that exists. We just saw it in the Putin interview that Tucker Carlson did, right? Where Putin was talking about stuff that was so obviously historically insane rewriting history about their origin of World War II, the origin of what happened with Ukraine, things that are so verifiably false that what happens when you live in this world, I mean, the good news for us, right, is that when you live in these alternative universes, and you're not dealing based on truth and fact, you tend to crash things and screw things up, right? That's part of what takes down dictators and authoritarians, which is that they actually are incompetent because right. they're not actually dealing with the world in a rational way. And with some of the evidence we have of that is the fact that the RNC is crashing right now, that state parties are crashing around the country, that his campaign is broke, right? That they're yeah. making huge mistakes. I mean, this guy is an unprecedented mess, yeah. um, you know, in the actual execution of the politics itself. And so it's one of, that's the, to me, that's sort of the, the upside of what yeah. we're seeing here. As much as there's danger and all this other stuff, this guy is, can't rub two sticks together. And um, and that, I think, is another reason why I'm so optimistic about this election. Yeah. Well, let's stay on the, the theme of optimism. Call out some more of the uh, <laughs> the projection here and play this lovely yeah. montage I put together for us of, of excellent memories and language, you know, just clear speaking and um, proper identification. Let's go.
<laughs> South Carolina Governor Kristi Noem joins us now, and we're going to turn around some of these sound bites from that insane press conference we just witnessed. Well, let's make a couple of things clear here, Kristen. You know, we passed the support for Iran uh, many months ago, three months ago. Uh, immediately after I became speaker, we sent the necessary resources there. We passed our... This historical evidence is overwhelming that the founding fathers intended impeachment to be used to deal with the commission of indictable crimes and the abuse of power. Six, you know, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, you know, they did you know they destroyed all of the information, all of the evidence, everything deleted and destroyed all of it, all of it because of lots of things like Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people. So I spoke with him that day after, I think after. I don't know if I spoke with him in the morning or not. I, I just don't know. Uh, I'd have to go back and, and I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know uh, that when, when those conversations happen. Um, I don't even know who the woman, let's see. I don't know who, it's Marla. You say Marla's in this photo? That's Marla, yeah, that's, that's my wife. Which woman are you pointing to? No. That's Here. Terrible. The person you just pointed to was oh, Eugene Carroll. Who is that? Who is this? And the person, the woman on the right is your then wife, I don't Ivana? know. This was the picture. Oh. I assume that's John Johnson. Is that Carroll? Because it's very blurry. It's very blurry, Simon. I mean, I don't know. Listen, it's going to be, I think the bottom line in all this is this is just going to be a rough election. And we're going to have nine months of just you know, vicious, outside the bounds war warfare. You know, I mean, today the DNC, for example, uh, filed their first ever FEC complaint against the Kennedy campaign for using uh, a super PAC money, this, un, you know, money that's unlimited, they can take large contributions to do basic activities of, uh, of their, of the Kennedy campaign itself to get him on ballot access. It's blatantly illegal and lawless, and the you know there's no you can't use there there are limits to what you can do with super PAC money. One of the things you cannot do <laughs> is put a candidate use it for ballot access. It has to be done in state after state by the actual campaign itself. I mean there are very clear laws on this. This is among the most lawless things that we've seen a campaign do in in recent memory. And the F and the DNC today filed a a complaint against the Kennedy campaign and against the super PAC. And again, we don't have necessarily any reason to believe that the FEC will act upon them because these, you know, all these systems of oversight have been disabled and weakened. But, you know, we're facing now already extraordinary lawlessness by the Kennedy campaign. And, and again, a sign of desperation, right? The, you only cheat and have to bend the rules uh, when you're not winning, right? And that's why Every time these kinds of things happen, you have to remember that this is a sign of desperation and people that aren't winning <clears throat> if you're cheating. And so, you know, this is this is going to be a rough election. I mean, I think I think we all have to remember one thing. I, I talk about this. That after you tried to overturn an American election and end American democracy for all time, then everything's on the table. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's the highest political crime you can possibly commit in a democracy perhaps other than working with a hostile foreign government to influence the outcome of an election, which may be number which two. Which they've done too. Yeah, which they've done too, right? <laughs> okay. So like, you know, whatever you can imagine 
you know, things like the way that they faked all the polls in 2022 to falsely create this impression of a red wave. I mean, that's like Little League, right, compared mm -hmm. to what they did in, in, in 2020 and 2021. And so I don't think that we've really come to reconcile the fact that we have this kind of lawless entity. You know, one mm -hmm. of our two political parties is willing to do and say just about anything mm -hmm. to gain and seize power and, and end American democracy for all time. And and I think I can tell you as somebody who's worked in politics for a long time and worked on presidential campaigns, it's hard enough to run a campaign inside the bounds of the way that we run elections. But having to run a campaign, recognizing now that that, you know, the Trump campaign is going to be doing all sorts of things that are outside the bounds of what's legal and permissible is it makes it far harder to manage and run a campaign. I mean, just even what the Kennedy campaign's done in the last few weeks, it's shocking how brazen and unbelievably illegal it is. And yet they feel like, again, right, there is no oversight. The Supreme Court is there, we'll bail them out if this thing goes through appeal and other things, if it goes into the, you know, and so there's a sense of the Supreme Court, I think, the, politic the politicization of the Supreme Court is creating a degree of lawlessness on the right that is tragic for the country. Yeah, um, as I mentioned, I, I don't want to get too much into that today, but I, I also, I mean, I don't think you can avoid, and believe me, I'm all there with you on the corruption on the right in the Supreme Court, not to mention the appointment of those three justices yeah. under Donald Trump, um, yeah. you know, Kavanaugh, I mean, the whole the whole thing. Clarence the Thomas not the McConnell rule, The McConnell I mean, rule in 2016, yeah, the which, oh they, which they immediately violated. Oh, my God. Know, I mean, you know, again and again and again. again. Amy yeah. Comey Barrett is a lame duck yeah. president. Yeah, Absolutely. no, it was all unbelievable. Of it. All of it. But even, even yesterday, I mean, I think a lot of us were a little bit shocked to see even the, the so-called liberal justices, you know, seeming to ask these probing questions about off ramps, about, you know, states' rights, about offices. We'll save that for another time, but I mm -hmm. wanted to comment on your um, your RFK uh, news bit there because I think the common wisdom is that if, and I'm glad the DNC is being proactive and filing that complaint. Me too, by the way, yep. Um, but I think the common wisdom is that if RFK is gonna take votes from anybody, it's Donald Trump because a lot of, a lot of his, um, the attraction to him is kind of from the conspiracy crowd, right. from the anti-COVID crowd, you know, or the, you know, anti-COVID restriction, anti-vaccination, you know, that kind of wing, which does not really attract a lot of Biden coalition voters. Don't you agree? I don't think we know. I mean, I think we have to be careful not to assume that we actually really understand yet. Things are still very soft. And I'll tell you that if you look at our coalition, I mean, there's a chunk of our coalition that's wandering right now um, that hasn't come home and much of Kennedy for the time being. And so, you know, I, I think that he's a wild card. He's got a Democratic pedigree. He's also positioning himself as kind of this, you know, pox in both your houses kind of uh, approach, which is very attractive to young people and to independents when you look at polling. So I, I, I don't know that we know the answer to that. And I, and I do think that what you're starting to see is the Republicans realize that it's possible they positioned him too far right. And they're now trying to push him back to the left, right? I mean, they're attacking him for being a Democrat. They're trying to build up his Democratic bona fides now. I think it's going to be hard, though. I think, look, I, I think the good news about all these, when I think about these rogue party, splinter party, you know, third party efforts, the way I look at it is that the most significant of all of them are the never Trump or never MAGAs, the, the people that are 
you know, former Republicans or weak Republicans, right, folks you know, right, is that um, who are just not going to be there with Trump. And there is a lot of evidence that the reason we won in 2022 in the battleground states and defied history was because those Trumpy candidates were unable to bring their coalition back together. And too many Republicans either voted Democrat or stayed home. And that Trump is going to be facing a very similar thing in 2024. We've seen from data in Iowa, New Hampshire, the warning signs are there for the Republican Party. In Iowa, more Haley voters said they would vote for Biden than for Trump. We've never seen polling like that in the modern history of, the, of American politics. There's never been a time where so many people in one party were so willing to vote for a candidate of the other party this early in the election. It was shocking to me how loosened the Haley vote is from the Republican Party. It's, it's also, we saw you know, lots of polling in the last few weeks showing that 20 to 30% of the Republic of Republican voters would have a very serious time voting for Trump if he were convicted of a crime. The thing is he already, he's already committed the crimes. And I feel like this if is a little bit from a political standpoint, we don't need convictions to make the case that he stole America's secrets so that he tried to lead an insurrection or that he's, a, you know, he's already been determined by courts, you know, that he's a verified rapist and that he's, you know, led a, this massive financial fraud. I mean, the stuff that we have to use against him is unprecedented. And as I like to say, there are these six things that we're going to be able to share with voters in 2020 about Donald Trump that they did. I mean, that six things that we're going to be able to share in this election that voters in 2020 didn't know about. And they are verified rapist, massive financial fraudster, right? That he led this insurrection as promised to end American democracy for all time. That he stole America's secrets, lied to the FBI about it. And we know that he shared those secrets with other people. That his family's taking more money from hostile, you know, from foreign governments than any family in the history of the United States. And that he ended Roe. Those six things are all new information for voters. And he lost the last election without those six things. And so I think in the political circles for people who've been on campaigns and know how this all works, there's just this sense that he's gone, that the, that any one of these six things could cause him to lose the election. And there are six of them, right? In addition to the policy extremism, in addition to his erratic behavior, in addition to his you know impulsivity and all the sense that he sends us that he's not fit to be president of the United States. I have this line, if you'll indulge me, which is that Republicans have right now is that you can paint his face, dye his hair, strap a girdle on him and a diaper two, pump him full of speed, and he's still not going to look like a presidential candidate ever again. And so you know, I'm very sanguine that for all the struggles and the bumps and everything that are going to come, mm -hmm. is going to be a very hard sell to the American people because he's much more degraded, dangerous, and uh, extreme uh, than he was in 2020. And he's also, his performance on the stump is far more um, erratic and frankly Deranged. disturbing. Yeah, disturbing. I mean, like, you know, he's not going to be able, as the exposure, I think part of what happened to the national media is that as they went into Iowa, New Hampshire, and they saw him, right, they watched his performances, you could see journalists on the air be like, oh my God, what happened to him, right? And I still think that process of recognizing what he is now, the monster that he is now, um, you know, even more of a monster than he was in 2020. I still think that process is not completely filtered through the political system yet. But if you were a typical Republican voter, for example, and you were watching, tuning in to Fox News on the night of the New Hampshire primary, and you listened to him go on this rant against uh, Nikki Haley, 
you had to be, if you're just a typical Republican, right? Not hard MAGA, you know, what you were watching was some of the, was one of the worst political performances in modern American history in a time when people were first starting to really pay attention. His inability to have gotten up on stage and just smiled and said, thank you for the win. And the fact that he had to have this vendetta and attack Haley, it's a demonstration that this guy is just unfit and is going to have a really hard time running any kind of conventional campaign. Yeah, you know, Simon, right now I'm finally, I've put my legal work first over the past six years and my my un, not for sale warnings. I'm finally now taking the time to write my book and turn it around as quickly as possible before the election. Good luck, good luck. Thank you, thank you. Um, it's an enormous task. Um, but one thing that I am writing about right now is what Donald Trump did in 2020 without, I'm sorry, in 2016, without which he would have never won the no. election is, and we can <laughs> take out Russian interference, of course, um, is that he stuck to the teleprompter when Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon came on that campaign. They were a train wreck of a campaign manager and a CEO, which you will hear a lot more about in my book. But one thing they did was they kept Donald Trump on message. If he had not been stuck to the teleprompter as they kept him stuck to it for the remainder of that campaign from Labor Day on, I don't think he would have ever won because they had to, they realized they had to portray him as somewhat sane and not this off the rails madman who was attacking disabled reporters and, you know, yeah having these crazy one-offs talking about, you know, uh, Ben Carson, you know, hammering somebody to death or whatever. I mean, he just, he, 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 he is uncontrollable. You know, yeah. I've, I've heard, I've been right next to Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller when they said, we have a candidate who doesn't listen. I've, I've talked to top advisors of his on military and veterans issues who told me he's harder to pin down than a wet noodle. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is who he is and who he's been. And like you said, do what they may, um, you know, flail like the devil who's desperate in his last days. Um, they cannot control him this time and his true colors are on display. And I agree with you. It's, um, it's, it's off the rails and it's, it's very, very evident. It's shocking actually. And, yeah. and, you know, and for, it's shocking in some ways that, his campaign and the people working for him are presenting to him that as, as a legitimate candidate for president. It's shocking that Mike Johnson and all the MAGAs and on the Hill are rallying behind him. It's shocking, right? Because for whatever the the myth of Trump, and one of the things that's important about you know 2016, and I talk about this more than I used to, um, is that you know there is this sort of still this as Ruth Ben Gaiet calls it, this sort of strong man sense about Trump that he's got this secret connection with working class Americans and brought out this kind of magical campaign in 2016. And, and in addition to what you described, right, is that, you know, he had two very large assists in that election coming from unusual places, right, from Russia and from Comey's intervention. I mean, it's my view that in, you know, 10 days out, the election was over. Hillary was up by five to six points. He had performed terribly in the debates. He had no mechanism for altering the trajectory of the race, which was not going his way. And then Comey entered the race and Hillary's numbers tanked. And the reason this matters so much, right? I mean, I'm, I'm harping on this and I know that this, a lot of this stuff has been memory hold, right, by, by the media, is that it's because he would not have won without those two things 
because given how close things were. And so he never had those magical powers. He never had that deep connection with, with the American, you know, with the working class Americans, as we saw in 2018, right, when we routed the Republican Party in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and, you know, had this extraordinary election in 2018. And then we had another really good election in 2020, and a, another really good election in 2022, and another really good election in 2023. And I'll say that what's happened in the last two elections, I don't think it's gotten enough attention because it, you know, when we beat MAGA in 2018 and 2020, it was within the bounds of normal kind of things, right? He had gone too far. The Democrats, you know, there was an uprising against him. We won the House and Senate and the presidency. But what happened next is very important. And it tells us a lot about 2024, which is what happened next is the party in power in the White House always loses seats in midterm elections and in off-year elections. Power ebbs away from the party in power, right? Obama went from 53% of the vote in 20, you know, 2008 to 51% in, in 2012. It's very common, right, that that happened. In 2022 and 2023, we gained seats in both elections. That hasn't happened in the modern history of the country. Something historically anomalous took place. And what's the explanation for that, right? To me, the explanation is that the most powerful force in our politics today, as it was in 2018, 2020, and the last few elections, is fear and opposition to MAGA. And then that, uh, and that, the power of that has outweighed the disappointment in Joe Biden and the Democrats. And it produced historically anomalous results in these last two elections. I think since Dobbs in the spring of 2022, something broke inside the Republican Party. The Republicans have continually struggled again and again and again in elections because a chunk of their coalition is just not there with them anymore. And, and, and whether how much of that coalition comes to us, we're going to find out, right? But I do think the never Trump or never MAGA Republicans, the former Republicans, if Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney campaign with Joe Biden, you know, we could create an historic permission structure for the Republican Party to splinter uh, in this election. And it's why I think this election wants to be a six, seven, eight point win for Joe Biden and the Democrats. I think that's where it wants to be. Whether we can get there, we're going to find out by the execution of the Biden campaign and Joe Biden himself over the next nine months. I want to talk about your thoughts for how they execute that campaign. But while we're on this topic of, um, you know, Democrats overperforming, um, you, of course, know and have written about in on the Hopium Chronicles this upcoming race in New York 3. It's happening yeah. on Tuesday. Um, early voting ends on yeah. Sunday. This, of course, is the election to replace um, George Santos in Nassau County. And right now, Democrat Tom Suozzi holds a four-point lead over Republican Mazi Pilip. Am I pronouncing their names right? <laughs> uh, yeah, Swazi, Swazi is. Swazi. Is yep. Okay, um, but this is one strong indication for the Democrats. Um, can you talk both yeah. about this specific campaign and also taking back the House and what I think a lot of people think is a more difficult reach, but so vitally important, yeah. and that's keeping the Senate. Yeah. So, I mean, this if Simon's right, if my theory of the case is right, you know, what we've seen is since Dobbs, as we've seen Democratic overperformance and Republican underperformance again and again, in election after election. And that basic dynamic has already shown up this year. And we saw it in there was a very competitive, hotly contested or statehouse race in Orlando, Florida, where the morning after on the Iowa caucuses when Trump and DeSantis finished number one and number two, two Florida boys, right? So Republicans woke up that day in Florida and had a good day. 
we took away a really important state house seat where we were outspent by two or three to one. I don't know what the final numbers were. And we, again, we overperformed in a competitive race. And then Trump has underperformed in Iowa and New Hampshire. Trump, the, the turnout in Iowa was anemic for the Republicans. They spent $100 million there. It was very competitive. The turnout was a fraction of what it was in recent elections. And then Trump in New Hampshire, right, finished 10 to 15 points below the public polling that we saw going in. There was no poll that had him below 60% in the final, few, in the final 10 days in New Hampshire. And he only got 54%. So you're starting to see, even in the early voting, this same basic dynamic of Democratic overperformance and Republican struggle. In the polling in New York 3, which is a district that Republicans won by seven and a half points in 2022, right? which is a big number to make up in, in, in any election. I mean, this, was a, this election was just recently, right? I mean, just 15, 16 months ago. Uh, Swazi leads in all the public polling. The early vote is promising what we've seen in the early vote. And if Democrats, you know, finish strong this final weekend, we should, you know, be able to win on Tuesday. Um, you know, and if people, uh, what you all can do, I mean, the, if, there are plenty of opportunities to give money and to make phone calls and to do texting and to canvas. You can go to my Hopium Chronicle site and find ways to get involved. We need your help. I mean, if people are worried about their democracy and have anxiety this weekend, put it to, you know, channel it into good works for Tom Swazi. We should win there. She's a bad candidate. He's a good candidate. Another example of them struggling to do the basics of what it's required to win elections. And I think in terms of the House, I mean, I, look, I'm my view is here's the likely scenario today. And I can't predict the future. Nobody can. But I can give you a reasonable judgment based on what we're seeing is that I think we should win the presidential election. I think the House should flip. And I think the Senate is you know, 50-50. I think all of our incumbents are doing really well. They're raising a lot of money. Um, their poll numbers are good, right? The Republican candidates and some of these key battlegrounds, like in 2022, are struggling to raise money. There's multi-candidate primaries that are going to leave them all bloodied again, similar to what happened in 2022. And, you know, miracles can happen. I mean, Ted Cruz had a terrible election last time. He's unpopular in Texas. We have, you know, one or maybe even two good candidates there. Florida could be an interesting state as well, because if the ballot, if this abortion ballot initiative clears the Supreme Court in the next, you know, hopefully the next few weeks, the Republicans are going to be having to defend a six week abortion ban in Florida in 2024, which polls at about 20 percent in Florida. And all of the Republican Party now is going to be having to defend one of the singular most unpopular things that anyone's done in recent history. And so I'm not telling you we're going to win Texas or Florida. But the chance that they could actually be competitive late and that we would have a shot and then when it's close, anything can happen, as we learned in 2016. Right. Um, is that, you know, those I you know, I'm not discount. I'm not counting them out. And I think everyone has to recognize there could be two wild ballot initiatives in Florida that could fundamentally alter the politics of Florida in 2024. One is this abortion ballot initiative. And the other one is a pot, a marijuana legalization ballot initiative which are both, if they both qualify and get on the ballot, Florida is going to be one of the most interesting states that we had all kind of mentally written off, I think, in 2024.
Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Don't count anything out. I think that's um, a lesson, you know, both for observers and for the people in grassroots to not count off races, not to yeah. fail to dedicate resources to races. I say this as someone who's living, you know, in Los Angeles County, 30 miles from a district that um, went to a MAGA Republican. I'm talking about Mike Garcia, yeah. you know, and I've seen, um, you know, Democrats maybe take some missteps and and miss some opportunities as well as democrats yeah. performed in 2022 if they had just performed a little bit better they could have kept the house you know without those mistakes in california and, and new york um so i mean we really can't afford to write anything so, can off. can i talk about that for a second because i please please yes so yeah no no I, I think what you're saying is really important and i want to just explain what i think happened because this is yeah. now a little bit i used to talk about this much more but we've had a whole year of elections so in yeah. 2022, in my view, there were two elections. There was a bluer election inside the battleground where we decided to run our big campaigns and where all these, you know, millions of volunteers and donors that we have around the country, this kind of huge uprising of citizen um, support for our democracy, you know, they went to work and we, our candidates raised huge amounts of money, built the largest campaigns we've ever had in those states, which allowed us to control the information environment and also then to push our performance on the ground with field operations and GOTV to the upper end of what was possible. And then, and so we overperformed to a great degree because of this uprising that has happened against MAGA, where there are millions of proud patriots who love their country, who are fighting with everything they got to prevent their, you know, their democracy and freedoms from slipping away. But we didn't run those same campaigns in New York and in California. Um, and the, uh, the admonition is that because you can't do everything, right? You can't get an A in every class, right? And we didn't run in those campaigns. And the admonition to us, it's a reminder of how powerful the right-wing noise machine still is and its ability to dictate, you know, daily discourse in this country. And so one of the things that I talk about, and I have an op-ed in the New Republic this week that just talks about how I think the Biden campaign needs to reinvent the model of a presidential campaign. I was in the war room in 1992. I helped design it. I helped build it. I helped run it day to day with Carvel and Stephanopoulos. And the war room was a reinvention of a presidential campaign. It was putting the daily information war, to use the term that we now use, front and center to everything we do. We tried to win it. And then when we were attacked, we responded. But there was, there was a very forward-leaning new effort to try to make sure that we got our story out every day and when we were rebutted, we responded, right? And it, it was a completely different way than the way the Dukakis campaign organized itself in 1988. And to me, we need to reinvent the war room in 2024. We need to not think of the war room as 20 sweaty kids drinking Red Bulls, producing TikTok videos, which I think is what's in our mind's eye, but we need to think of it as two to three million proud patriots who love their country, who are, net, who are uh, networked into the Biden campaign and who we asked to amplify the stories and the messages coming out of the Biden campaign every day. If two to three million people can work their networks and reach just 10 people each, right? That's 20 to 30 million people every day. Tucker Carlson was the most influential commentator in America when he was reaching three million people a day. I think we have more power to push back against right-wing information dominance than we understand. And I don't think that the campaign should be as reliant on paid advertising, top-down paid advertising. We need to have a bottom-up citizen-led, what I call information warriors, who are gonna be spreading information through their networks and ask them to do it in a purposeful way and to design a campaign to feed information into those people every day. 
How do I know it's going to work? Because it's what I do on my Substack every day. I built my Substack to create information, strategies, understandings that is free, right? Anybody can subscribe to all these people who are taking actions and campaigns all across the country. Um, and so I know this can work. And so I think there's a real opportunity for the Biden campaign. The way I like to think about this is that, you know, Joe Biden, when he thinks of his campaign, shouldn't think of the Delaware, the Wilmington headquarters and the thousand people working for him. He needs to think of the campaign as two to three million people who are partners in the fight and not donors to the cause, people who are ready to go to work to save their democracy. He said just recently in that famous that speech he gave just a few weeks ago that he's asked every American to join him in this fight to save our democracy. Well, if, they, if that's what he's asked, then he needs to design a campaign that will allow all of us to be part of that, not just the people who live in the seven battleground states, right? So I, I think there's an opportunity for reinvention here that's really important for us. Because I think if I can say one last thing about this is that the work that I've been doing over the last year and a half, two years, you know, I was a DC insider and, and I've been for a long time and I'm now working with grassroots groups all over the country. I've really changed my focus from a couple hundred people in DC to hundreds of thousands of people around the country. The inspiration that I get every day from the groups that I talk to, these just regular people, right, who've decided that they're going to give 10 hours a week, 20 hours a week to help Democratic campaigns win all across the country, pro-democracy campaigns all across the country. The, the, the patriotism that I am personally witnessing, the love of country that I personally witness every day, the passion, the grit, the fight that I see every day inspires me in ways that I've almost never been inspired in my very long political career. The American people are fighting. They're not going to let, there's millions of Americans who are, who are fighting to make sure that the democracy that we have doesn't end on their watch. And that's why another reason why I'm so confident about what we're going to be able to do this year is we got millions of people. Republicans have 200 oligarchs, right? I'd rather have millions of people than 200 oligarchs any day of the week. Well, thank you, Simon, for giving me that segue into your New Republic piece, which I was just yeah. about to, to um, sure. pick up and, and laying out those four, those four, you know, really sharp points that you lay out there for the Biden campaign. Um, before you leave, and I wanted to raise this with you, you know, with your um, invaluable expertise, I can't skip the subject. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, sometimes, you know, I get appreciation from our viewers. I also get some pushback, but mm -hmm. I don't think that we can afford to avoid the tough questions. Yep. Um, like you were talking about, we always, yeah. you know, we don't get an A every time, but we're kind of living in times where we damn well better get an A every time. Yeah. Um, and a, you know, elephant in the room here is what's going on in the Middle East. Um, yep. It's, um, we talk about taking back the narrative from MAGA, and that is, um, of course, affecting maybe independents and others who might um, otherwise vote Republican. But um, when it comes to the Democratic base, yeah. Um, the progressive end, people say the yeah. youth vote. I don't even think it's just the youth vote. I saw, I think, a, a maybe a 60 year old woman from Wisconsin being interviewed recently, speaking very clearly about how she's distraught about what's going on in Gaza, the U.S. support yeah. for it and needs to see Biden definitively change course. Yeah. Um, can I just get your thoughts on yeah, sure. this? Yeah. So first of all, there's no definitive data showing that Biden has taken a big political hit for this. In fact, the last couple of weeks, we've seen some of Biden's best polling that he's had in, in many months in not every poll, right? I mean, let me just say as a caveat, like in 2022, 
not all the polling we're seeing is all pointing in the same direction, right? There's actually been a lot of really good polling for Biden. There's also been a lot of really bad polling for Biden, right? And so my view is that things are all over the place. It's a very competitive election. Trump is not definitively leading. And, and there, is, there also isn't any definitive data showing that Biden has taken a huge hit on Israel, the Israel Hamas, his management of the Israel-Hamas war. Um, you know, I'll give you a couple stats on this. I mean, we we know, you know, the Economist YouGov poll this week, for example, asked 18 to 29 year olds, what is their most important issue? And the number choosing foreign policy was zero, right, of 18 to 29 year olds. And I think that the way I view this is that there is a very small universe of, of Democrats that where this is their number one issue and they're very loud and they're very organized. But for most Democrats and for most voters, the issues around healthcare and the economy, the bread and butter stuff is always going to be more important than some far away, you know, far away war. And I think some of the even the campus protests that we saw in the fall have are not being replicated now, right, in this new college semester that we've seen. So I think what is likely, I'm not I'm not predicting the future, but if history tells us anything, these kinds of wars don't really drive are very infrequently drive voting behavior. What usually vi- drives bo- voting behavior is things like healthcare and the economy and you know how people are doing. You know, and the good news around that is the economy is very strong right now, right? And that consumer sentiment is rising. And even for young people, you know, young people are entering the best job market in, since the 1960s. You know, there are fewer young people without health insurance than ever before in history. We've seen, you know, we saw in a in a spring, the last data we have on this in the spring, home ownership for Gen Z is equal to Gen X and millennial at this point in their lives. We know that minimum wages have been, you know, have risen all across the country. So the floor, the starting salary for many young people is much higher than it would have been otherwise. And so, I, you know, look, I think I, I my basic view about this election is that Joe Biden has been a good president. Um, the country is far better off than when he came into office. And we have a very strong case for re- to make for re-election. But the campaign has to accelerate and turn on. I think they made a mistake by waiting so long, to be honest, and, and in terms of real talk, truth talk, right? And because the right, the other side is very noisy and, and we need Joe Biden. We have to be as noisy as they are. So we got to turn the campaign on. We've got to accelerate the development of the campaign. We have to engage Trump every day and in every way possible. And we also have to be very aggressive about making our case. And I think for your, you know, your viewers, the, what can you do, right? I mean, obviously, in addition to joining the Biden-Harris campaign for five bucks, 10 bucks, think of yourself as an information warrior. Think of yourself, pick an issue, pick a few things that you really care about. Think of it as like a victory garden in World War II, right? What can you do? to help sell Joe Biden to your community. And I think if I can end on this basic note is that the other day on Hopium, there was a woman named Irene, and I don't know where she's from or her last name, but she told a story on our chat where she said, you know, I'd gone to dinner the other night, Simon, with three of my friends, and they started ripping on Joe Biden, all Democrats. And I used all the information I get from your site to tell them about what a good president Joe Biden has been. And by the end of dinner, they'd all come around and they were excited about the election. Well, think about that. Imagine if a million of us are doing that every day, the kind of impact it can have. Do not believe for a moment these kinds of casual conversations you have with friends, the kind of emails that you send to a few family members. If a million people are doing it every day, the chorus is very, very loud. And there will be a million people, two million people doing it. Become part of this chorus. 
because all of you have an incredible role to play in making sure that, our, that we win this election, that pro-democracy forces prevail, and that we win this election hopefully by a lot so that we can start to loosen MAGA's dark grip on the Republican Party and eventually have another a center-right party again in America rather than what we have today. So, you know, there's a lot we can all do together. Thank you for what you do, you know, and I'm excited to read your book, by the way. And, and oh, thank you so much, Simon. <laughs> thank you so much, Simon. And yeah. you know what? I I absolutely echo that. And I thank you um, for that, all that empirical data. You know, I, yeah. the, the, with our Muslim and Arab friends, I share the outrage and the heartbreak about what's going on yeah. in the Middle East. And I, and I yearn for a definitive cut with Netanyahu that I even see many of my Israeli friends calling for because yeah. Netanyahu is, a, is an authoritarian demagogue, much like Trump, who would like nothing more than an endless war for Trump to get back in power. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that both the right policy actions occur and I continue to have those conversations. Um, my support for Joe Biden, in spite of some criticisms I have in different yeah. areas, is unwavering because I understand the stakes and I will continue I, to make the case for him. I think where we're all united on this is that, yeah. and, I, and I have been just sort of just supportive of Joe Biden because I think this is a very difficult situation and I don't think yeah. there was any easy path here, is that I think the common ground we all have is that BB must go, right? Yeah. And and it is the, the Jewish community here in the United States has to become more vocal about this. You know, I hosted Israeli, you know, during the, before the war, mm -hmm. I hosted on Hopium, you know, Israelis who were fighting for democracy in Israel. Yeah. And, you know, BB is holding on, you're right. I mean, he's, he's very Trumpian in his in his the way that he's approaching all this and he's doing enormous harm to israel Absolutely. um you know in a time when it really matters and so i do think that we all have to be more vocal in the way you were about the necessity for for the people of israel and for the people of the region and for palestinians for bb to go and we've got to create more of a you know chorus there as well i'm with you 100 percent Wonderful. Well, we've spent a lot of time today with all of your wonderful insight talking about showing up, being there, being on your A game. And yeah. I just wanted to give a final shout out to Representative Al Green, who showed up yeah. this week in his hospital scrubs. And by the way, Simon, why does nobody have a photograph of this? Uh, showed up in his hospital scrubs with his uh, tan hospital socks on yeah. to cast that deciding vote. I mean, go Al Green. It's pretty awesome. And, you know, they're going to take, they're forcing Scalise to come back from his cancer treatments on Tuesday to try to, and the reason, by the way, they're doing it on Tuesday is because on Wednesday, Tom Swazi is going to be a congressman and they're going to mm -hmm. lose a, another vote. So they're, they're literally forcing a cancer patient to come to Washington on Tuesday to get to do this vote on Mayorkas. And I just, I just, is a way, yeah. I mean, just as a sign of desperation and extremism and, and just how crazy they've gotten. I mean, it's just, and, but I want everyone to recognize the signal that Sunday, they're not bringing Scalise on Wednesday. They're not bringing him on Thursday. They're bringing him on Tuesday mm -hmm. because they think they're going to lose in New York three. And if we do the work, right, we're going to win. I think we're going to make Tom Swazi a Congressman on Wednesday. It's going to be exciting. Let's keep winning. Simon, it's been such such a pleasure to meet you. Thank I you. I've yeah, just watched you, admired you from afar, and now we get yeah. to meet. Such a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much for the opportunity, and I appreciate the intelligence of the conversation. It's really refreshing. Thank you for that, Simon. Everybody, please check out um, Simon's hopeful commentary at the Hopium Chronicles on Substack. And uh, you can find all his media appearances, including this one, of course, um, on that site as well. Sure. Uh, 
thank you, Simon, for joining us. Thank you to all of our viewers. Um, as always, if you want to continue my, if you want to support my continuing legal battle where we continue to show up and hold the Trump campaign ac accountable, you can do that as always at thejessicadenson.com slash donate. We need your support and we thank you so much for supporting us. It really, really um, is so heartwarming and helpful. Um, as also, you can support this show by subscribing to Lights On with Jessica Denson wherever you get your audio podcast. And also my YouTube channel, Jessica Denson, which is the best place to always find the Lights On playlist, including these live shows and like special episodes like the one I mentioned that we're going to do on Monday with Jason Murray, who just um, completed those historical oral arguments in the Supreme Court. Uh, thank you, everybody. Um, keep your memory sharp on what matters. And as always, let your light shine.